Welcome to Multifamily Real Estate Investing, presented by Mara Poling. My name is Pat Poling. I'm the founder and CEO of Mara Poling, and I will be with you for the next 20 or 25 minutes to discuss some interesting topics related to multifamily real estate investing, key metrics. We're going to spend a little bit of time today introducing a number of key metrics that we use to assess the health of assets, the viability of new acquisitions, and that we report against on a monthly, quarterly, and annual basis to our clients. I hope you'll find this information valuable, and we will be going into each of these key metrics in more detail in the coming weeks and months. So if you have not subscribed to Multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Mara Poling yet, please do so. And that way you'll be able to hear all the great details on each of these key metrics as we uh, discuss them, as I said, in great detail over the next several weeks and months. Uh, today, we're going to go through and get a high-level look at the metrics, how we use them, where they came from, and, uh, and get everything set up for, uh, for that detailed, deeper dive later on. So let's go ahead and get started. As always, you can email me any questions you have, pat at marapoling.com, M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. And if in listening to all of this great material that we hopefully uh, uh, have provided and that you hopefully have found of value, uh, you have some interest in potentially working with us, uh, shoot me an email as well. You can always swing by the website, marapolling.com, for more great educational content. So key metrics, the whole concept of key metrics are having a quick set of measures, uh, tools that we can use to assess an acquisition, determine if it makes sense to continue working that through our process or if we've actually found the reason to walk away, which as you know is part of what we try and do in our acquisition efforts. And for those properties that we have secured and closed and are now operating, how are they performing? Where are we having variances? How significant are those variances? Uh, be they favorable or unfavorable? Uh, and what might we do uh, about those things? And these key metrics help us gauge that over the life cycle of the ownership of that particular asset. Key metrics is a common term. If you spend any amount of time in the investing space, you're going to hear uh, firms talk about their key metrics. They might call them KPIs, key performance indicators, or all sorts of different things. Uh, it essentially boils down to the same thing. Here's some, here's some quick, uh, easy to understand tools uh, that allow you to get a handle on how the entity is performing at that particular point in time. We use them for two reasons. We use them, as I just described, to understand how an asset that we already own is performing. Are we getting the uh, revenue growth that we expected? Are we hitting our income uh, numbers? Are we, are we achieving those at the pace that we expected uh, them to uh, occur? Uh, or faster or slower, and faster, by the way, doesn't always mean better. Um, so, so that's one of the uses of, of key metrics is to assess the health of an asset that we already own. Another, and it's most likely the place where we get even greater value out of the key metrics, 
is in determining the fitness of a potential acquisition to our portfolio, whether it's our overall portfolio or our portfolio for the uh, total return fund. Uh, we wanna make sure that assets we are looking to acquire fit the model that we espouse, uh, which is uh, moderate risk, uh, good old solid class B Goldilocks class, light value add, modest rent movements, reasonable leverage, so on and so on and so on. And this allows us to get a, a handle on how that uh, on how that's going to work. So, uh, with no further ado, let's walk through the the key metrics. As I said, we're gonna we're gonna hit them at a high level uh, to start with, and then we'll take a deeper dive as we go forward. We'll have a we'll have an individual session on each one of these. So, as you're listening, if you have questions about any one of these that you'd like answered in that deeper dive, again, shoot me an email pat at marapolling.com. The first is a DSCR, debt service coverage ratio. This is a metric that comes to us by way of our lending partners, right? Well, remember, we love our lenders. They're not a hurdle to uh, get over. They're partners to work with. They're, in almost every instance, going to write a check that's the largest of all the checks that gets written. And so if they have something they care about, we want to care about it too because it probably makes a lot of sense to uh, to understand their perspective on a property debt service coverage ratio is the amount of cash you generate for debt service related to the actual debt service so if it was uh one if that was your ratio was one then that would mean you are generating a dollar in cash and that dollar in cash is covering the dollar in debt service that you have. It's perfectly balanced. That would also mean that if for some reason you generated 99 cents in cash, you'd be short a penny on your debt service. So you'd be riding the knife's edge to do that. Not surprisingly, lenders want to see some cushion. Well, how much cushion? Generally speaking, it's 25 basis points. In some instances, it can be 30 or 35 or even 40. Uh, some higher debt service ratios will give you better interest rates. Um, so in the example I just gave, where there's a dollar in debt service that needs to be covered, if you generated a dollar and 25 cents in cash in that same period, you'd have a debt service coverage ratio of 1.25. And that's generally where you want to, uh, to land. We look at it in the acquisition phase, and then we also track it as we go forward. We want to see that debt service coverage ratio rise to, from 125 to 150 to 175 to 2 and higher and higher, meaning that that shows that we're throwing off more and more and more cash with a stable uh, interest rate uh, and uh, debt service environment. Okay, so that's that's one of the metrics, debt service coverage ratio. Lenders care about it, we care about it. The next is the one that we use that's really a part of our stress test, very closely related to debt service coverage ratio, and that's break-even occupancy. So this defines the minimum level of occupancy that would be required to generate sufficient cash to cover all cash expenses, including debt service and capital reserves. 
So we have property taxes that we pay and insurance and staff wages and the gardener and all sorts of other cash expenses. And we have a loan payment we have to make. And the lender is going to ask us to set $200, $250, $300 per unit aside over the course of the year. So we've got a few thousand dollars we need to give the lender to do that. All of that is the cash that's required. How much occupancy do we have to have? What's that minimum number in order for us to be able to meet that requirement? And then we want to make sure that that level of occupancy, that break-even occupancy, allows us to have 150 to 200% of historic vacancy and still break even or better. So if we've got historic vacancy at 10%, that's the peak that we've hit, then we want to be able to withstand a 15 to 20% vacancy rate and still be successful, still be positive on cash flow, which would mean we'd need a break even occupancy in the mid 80s to as the low 80s, something in there is where we'd like to be. Uh, we could absolutely be in the 70s. That's very common for a lot of our properties is to be in the high 70s uh, when we start. That's also one that, we, again, we measure over time. It's a great metric for us to see the level of stability and security we have inside these assets. And again, that's part of our investment thesis. All right, next up is NOI growth, net operating income growth. NOI is the number. We, we did a session on this a while back. If you haven't heard that one, go back and take a listen. I think you'll find that uh, interesting. Uh, hopefully you do. Uh, NOI is the number. Uh, it's great to talk about average rents or other income or how we can improve uh, occupancy and reduce vacancy or bad debt or all the other things and manage expenses. Those are all important levers, important activities. They all come together though at net operating income and net operating income is the engine that drives our cash performance and our equity growth. When we increase net operating income by a dollar, that's a dollar that we have in cash to distribute now. So our cash return has gone up and because of the application of cap rates, that dollar in NOI just added 10, 15, $20 in value to the value of the asset because that's how commercial multifamily assets are evaluated. So we wanna be able to understand what our NOI growth is going to look like over the hold period of the asset. Now we benchmark against the first year we don't benchmark against the acquisition NOI, against the T12 NOI for a variety of reasons. Uh, for the same reason that lenders don't use the T12 NOI, they'll look at T3 revenue and then their own assessment of what they believe expenses will be, learning what they can from the T12s. We do the exact same thing. Uh, we'll build our NOI model and then we benchmark against that as we go forward and we expect to see some meaningful growth, especially in the first few years, because that's when that value add component is, uh, is playing such an important role. Next is principal reduction. So unless you've got a loan that is IO for the entire period, interest only for the entire hold period, you're gonna be paying some principal as part of your debt service. It's a small number, right? It's not a huge amount that you pay. 
However, if you look at that number relative to the amount of capital we have invested, it's not insignificant. It generally ranges between maybe two or two and a half percent annualized to as much as three and a half or even four percent. And that's during the earlier years of, of a hold period, meaning that if all the asset did was break even, right? We hit that break even number and that's all we did. We didn't generate any cash beyond that. We would see growth in equity. We'd be getting a return of two and a half to three and a half or 4% simply by making the debt service, by making the mortgage payment. So we wanna understand what that number looks like. Uh, the lower that number is, it, it's a part of keeping your leverage a little higher, right? So when you're going interest only, you could think of it this way, you're effectively paying your interest every month and then borrowing it back, right? Because your balance doesn't, uh, uh, pardon me, you're paying your principal every month and then borrowing it back. Um, so you're keeping that uh, principal high, which keeps your interest expense higher and so on. It looks great on cash, but it have absolutely has an impact on the performance of the asset over a long period of time. Next up is loan to value. Loan to value is a very critical number. It's probably the number I get asked the, the most about when I chat with, uh, with folks like you all. Uh, what's your loan to value? How do you purchase assets? Well, loan to value uh, sounds like a really simple concept, and the math certainly is, but it needs to be looked at on the whole. And that is uh, not just the loan to purchase price number, uh, but there's other costs involved, right? So there's closing costs, there's the uh, capital improvements and so on. Um, and so those need to be understood as well. And loan to value will move over time. We like to start out uh, with a purchase loan to value in, in the 70 to 75% range. That's generally where we would start. And then it will move down uh, in part because initially we're gonna put a bunch of cash into the property uh, between closing costs and those capital improvements, which are going to reduce the uh, loan to value. And we're gonna grow the value of the asset. When we get into that 50% range, sub 50, definitely into the mid 40s, we've developed some lazy equity. And that's when it's time for us to start looking at uh, the options we have. And we always wanna build options into our models. Uh, the options we have to free that lazy equity, right? So we could uh, take out a supplemental loan, we could refinance, we could sell the asset and uh, execute a 1031 exchange. We could do a number of different things. So loan to value is another key component that we're gonna look at. Average rent. Everybody wants to know what the average rent of an asset is, right? When you're getting ready to buy it, what's the average rent? And that's great. I would hazard a guess. I've honestly never looked. Uh, maybe I'll have somebody go, go do that this week. Say, hey, let's take a peek and see. I don't think we have any tenants that actually pay average rent. Um, it's, you know, like any other statistical uh, uh, construct. Uh, Average is average, but there probably isn't anybody that actually is average uh, because we have one bedrooms and two bedrooms and three bedrooms and different sizes and shapes and uh, all sorts of other pieces that go into the equation of what rent is. And when we build a model, when we're doing an underwrite, we don't build average rent. We, 
we model rents for the individual units we have against what the market comps are in those uh, in those markets. So we don't, average rent is not an input in and of itself. Rent is, we put rent into the model, but average rent is not an input. So being able to look at what the average rent is that we're forecasting is very helpful while we're in the acquisition process. And this is a number we do track uh, and look for favorable and unfavorable variances when we, uh, when we do our monthly, quarterly, and annual uh, performance assessments. Next up is average rent increase. So this is how much that rent number is moving annually. And our, our model, our strategy would be that, the, that it's a, a, a bit of a curve, right? That it's going to start out and, and rise rather meaningfully, 5, 8, 10%, something like that. And it's going to run at that rate for about two years. And then it's going to begin to tail off, and then it's going to flatten out at two and a half, three, three and a half percent, something like that, which is where we say the market is for that particular uh, cohort of assets in terms of what the market's doing every single year. Part of what we want to do when we look at that number, for example, in the acquisition process, is uh, I mentioned a moment ago that uh, uh, faster isn't always better. We want to be careful that we're not underwriting extremely aggressive rent movements, uh, either in total percentage or in the speed with which we get those. So we would like to see rent movement in the 10 to 15, as high as 20%. You get north of 20%, you're really doing a different kind of project than the kind of work we like to do and you're taking on a different risk profile. Doesn't mean those are bad properties, right? Doesn't mean those can't perform well. Simply means there's a different risk uh, associated with your investment if you're trying to drive rents 30 or 40%. Those are rehab projects, ours are light value adds. But it also matters how quickly you do that, right? So if we came out and attempted within 12 months to move everybody's rent, uh, it, could it be done? possible, uh, and you'd have great turmoil, right? You'd have a really big hit on your occupancy performance uh, from that standpoint. And if you stretch that out over a longer period of time, so you, what you end up doing is moving rents on average 4%, 4.5% a year, um, that could be a very low risk uh, approach. It also might be uh, part of what contributes to the level of performance you're going to see in terms of returns. Uh, and so it's a, it helps you understand that rent lever. Now you'll you'll notice in looking at that. So that's that's the rent side. We're going to talk about occupancy here in a minute. We don't do a metric for other income, uh, in large part because it can vary significantly from property to property depending upon how that property is physically structured and what amenities it may or may not be able to offer, as well as the market it's in and so on. Uh, but the bulk of the revenue side is rent and occupancy. And so now the final key metric we want to talk about is occupancy. And when we say occupancy, we're talking about total occupancy, effective occupancy, whatever the number or definition is you want to use, the term, uh, that is 100% minus physical vacancy, minus bad debt, minus concessions. That's the definition we're using for occupancy in our models. 
So we're looking for uh, performance that's going to be in the 90s, right? On our initial assessment when we're uh, going through the acquisition process, we want to see an asset that's going to perform in the 90s. We normally would underwrite pretty low 90s, right? 90, 91, maybe 92, something in that range. Because remember, this is a combination of physical vacancy, bad debt, and concessions. And that's how it's actually built in the underwrite, is there's inputs for each of those three. We don't put an input in actually for occupancy. So it's very helpful to look at that as a metric, not only in terms of the acquisition phase, but very clearly from an operational standpoint. Uh, occupancy and rent are two very big levers when you are uh, managing the operations of the asset. They don't always move in opposite directions, right? So an increase in rent doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have a decrease in occupancy. A rather aggressive increase in rent probably does mean a decrease in occupancy. And conversely, if you work to increase your occupancy, that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to decrease your rents or even slow the rate of rent increase, right? And that's part of the uh, challenge in exercising the operations of an asset is developing the strategies and the positionings and then executing them uh, in such a way where the value that's being generated for the tenants is recognized by tenants such that there's a willing group of tenants out there and prospective tenants that will pay that rent and in doing so maintain your occupancy and the like. So debt coverage ratio, break-even occupancy, NOI growth, principal reduction, loan to value, average rent, average rent increase, and occupancy. Those are the main key metrics that we use. I say main because there's lots of other uh, measurements that can be used and that we do use, but these are the, are the big ones. We report on these to our members on a regular basis. They're in our performance. They're in our reporting that we uh, that we do. We look for variances, both favorable and unfavorable. Uh, try to learn what's going on in those instances. And for the unfavorables, we look to address those so that we can get back on track. And for the favorables, we want to understand what what we did or what market conditions came together that caused this to happen. And is that something we can continue to take advantage of as we go forward? So as I said, in the coming weeks and months, uh, we'll take a session, maybe every other session, maybe every third session uh, here on uh, multifamily real estate investing presented by Mara Poling, uh, and we'll go into break-even occupancy or loan to value or occupancy, and we'll go into those in some detail uh, and talk more about them. Uh, if you have questions in the meantime, I'm happy to answer those for you. Again, shoot me an email. Pat at Mara Polling. You can always go to the website and click on the uh, the little phone icon, and you can set up some time. Be more than happy to chat with you uh, uh, to uh, answer any questions you've got, or just to help you understand all of this a little bit better. I hope you found today's session uh, valuable and enjoyable. And please subscribe and join us again next week for another episode of Multifamily Real Estate Investing, presented by Mara Polling.